Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here today. Today's guest is none other than Dan Korneff, who is an amazing mixing engineer, producer, plug-in manufacturer, and he is very multi-talented, and he's worked with some really huge acts. He's worked with bands like Paramore, Breaking Benjamin, My Chemical Romance, Lamb of God, and a whole bunch of others. And as you're going to hear in this interview here today... Dan is a very old school approach kind of guy, but he also has a unique take on how to use a lot of that analog gear. And we get into a lot of his personal thought process behind using analog gear and manipulating it to get the sounds that you want. And I think you're going to find that really interesting. His approach is something that a lot of people don't necessarily take these days. And I think that that's what makes him really stand out in today's pool of engineers and producers. So I'm really excited for you to check out this interview. And let's just jump right into it. Well, Dan Corniff, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing great. So for people who might not know your history and how you got started in all of this, can you give us a little bit of that background and, you know, who you are, what you do and how you got into where you are? Man, it's so funny when when people ask you, because sometimes I forget all the, the shit that I've done and I have to like look up my own credits to remember, oh, right. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> I worked on that. <laughs> started out as uh, an engineer, engineering records and and moved into uh, producing and then moved into mixing, worked with a, a bunch of bands that that I love, uh, like Paramore and Breaking Benjamin and, you know, stuff like that, Pierce the Veil. I love love all these bands. I guess that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> so how did you start? Like, what, what got you into this in the first place? Well, I, uh, I started as a musician, so I'm a drummer. Started out in a band, a death metal band. We are called Cerebral Carnage um, and uh, recorded... Uh, demo it was terrible and uh uh i was like you know what i could do better than this like why are we hiring someone to do this and you know so i bought a bunch of little crap a, a four track recorder and a couple of microphones from radio shack and and got started and i'm like wow this is bad but it's way better than what this guy who just charges to, you know to do and that that just like uh that was the end of it i couldn't stop it's it's the addiction right you you start and then you start making music and then you're creative and then you buy more gear and then it just goes around and around and around just a giant spiral i love that cuz cuz it's a very similar story to what a lot of people have which is like you know you're in the studio someone else is recording you and then for whatever reason without having any experience prior to that we're always like yeah, I can do a better job than that. <laughs> I going to say, I, I guess that's the whole point of like, of the production is like hearing something and, and wanting to get that sound in your head uh, and record it. And maybe these other people don't quite have the same vision that you do. Yeah, I think that's very true. Like you, you kind of know, as the musician, you know what you want the outcome to be. And, you know, you're going to be comparing it to records that you love. And, you know, there's things in those records that you want in yours. So, you know, if someone doesn't know how to get those results, like then you just got to do it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So were you completely self-taught when you started then? When I started? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, bugging a lot of people at Sam Ash, reading a lot of magazines, just seeing how everyone else was doing stuff. I, I think that re reading magazines is where I, I learned a lot of my stuff, mix mag and recording mag and, and stuff like that. And just like waiting for, interviews from producers who've worked on the records that I love and just try to grab that one little tidbit of something and, and try it out, you know, see if it works. And then did you eventually like internet studios or, you know, how did you get into to doing this full time? I was, uh, I was headed on a diff different career path. Um, I was going to school for, uh, engineering in a different sense. I was going to school for civil engineering. So got a job at a, uh, uh, an engineering firm designing streets and, uh, you know, just one day I was like, you know what, I, if I'm going to do music, like I'm still young, this is the time to do it. And my parents were like, yeah, well, you still have to go to college. I'm like, cool, uh, let's go to music school. And they're like, I don't think so. Like, you know, what if your ears give out, you know, you need a, a real degree is what they told me. Well, it's fine. So I found a music school, uh, on long Island that had, um, was a business school that had music courses. So I took that and that was kind of like, uh, the jumpstart into the pro stuff. So 
my the first day there, this uh, professor took me under his wing, and uh, you know I just hung out with him the whole time. He got me internships at all the studios that he was working out of, and uh, that was like the the springboard to my career. It's working in these big studios. And so you said that you started as a drummer, which is also something that I find is a very common trend with engineers. Engineers always want to be drummers, and drummers always want to be engineers. It seems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 How do you think that um, your ability to play an instrument has helped you with what you do today? And like, you know, I can I find that, yeah, drummers, I don't know if it's like an attention to detail thing, but like we tend to we tend to get into the woods pretty deep when it comes to engineering for, for whatever reason. So how, how do you think that that's helped you with what you do today and producing bands and engineering as well? I feel like uh, there are plenty of producers that, that don't play instruments and do a great job of of communicating what they want with a band. But I feel like playing an instrument really helps you communicate with a band. It gives you knowledge of, of what is actually possible to play, what you could play. Specifically, being a drummer, I feel like the the beat and the groove of the song is, is the most important thing to me. You know, the chords, it could be any chord in the world, but if there's no groove, like the song doesn't mean anything to me. So... I really enjoy that the drumming aspect of it. So I can see right behind you, you've got uh, a ton of amazing gear and what looks like an amazing studio. Tell me a little bit about your setup. Like, what what are you using these days? Are you, it looks like you use a lot of outboard gear from from what I can see there. But. Yeah, I have I have some outboard gear out here. Um, I'm still old school. I have uh, an SSL G console, and I st still use the old school automation on it. Um, you know, I, it's kind of like a hybrid setup where. Uh, I'll do some summing in the box. You know, there's, there's no sense of of putting five different snare drum uh, tracks on, on different channels of the console. Just kind of sum stuff down in the groups and then then mix it on the console. And I just I still love that sound. You know, I know a lot of people are moving to being completely in the box. And uh, for me, it just it doesn't sound the same. And a lot of the bigger guys I know that are moving in the box, it's probably some of the worst mixes that I've heard. I don't know. I just don't. I don't want to give up the quality for convenience for and sure i can't i can't do it <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about the analog sound then that has you staying there you know it sounds real it sounds 3d to me you know if i listen to an in the box mix i can tell it you know all right it sounds cool it's kind of thumping and uh you know everything's nice and clear but it doesn't it just doesn't move the same way. It, it has like a haze over it. It has. It, it kind of feels like it's limited in its its dimension, and that's the only way I can explain it. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we started recording, you would mentioned that you were building some gear today. So how how did that all start for you? How did you get into that side of it? Man, that uh, came to be from just not having any money whatsoever and having gear envy. So. Uh, uh, when I first started getting into this stuff, um, really, really, really wanted an LA2. And um, I was kind of handy with just making stuff. I love just making stuff, anything, printing T-shirts, uh, whatever it may be. I love getting my hands dirty. And uh, and I said, well, I, I could probably build a compressor. So I, I went online and I found this book. This is probably 25 years ago. found this PDF that this guy made on how to build an LA2. And that got me started. I, I never ended up building that one from the book, but that got me uh, hooked on it. So uh, in place of it, I ended up building uh, an SSL bus compressor. And uh, that was from a kit. Didn't work. And uh, it spent about six or seven months on my kitchen table, <laughs> just me trying to figure out what it is, uh, what was wrong with it. And I think that that's what really uh, took off was um you know it was broken and ha why why is that and and how do i figure that out um so just started reading a lot of books uh going to a lot of websites learning on google about what what is what why is this doing what it's doing and then eventually i got to work and uh you know that that sort of sealed the deal for me that's awesome and and I, it definitely um I'd love to talk a little bit about your plugins a little bit later, but I can tell that the fact that you have had that experience of building the physical gear and like, you know, going through all of that trial and error with it, it's definitely made an impact on what you're doing now with plugins as well. And it's, it, it is very interesting to hear the, the versatility that you can get when you have that knowledge of, you know, these kind of resistors are going to sound like this or, you know, that kind of thing. Right. 
And so have you always, do you, do you sell your, your outboard gear that you built? I've only built for friends, which my friend list is now getting very large. <laughs> I've, I've built, built a lot of gear for, for a lot of people, uh, but mostly just for friends. I am coming up with uh, original designs for Corn F Audio. So there is going to be an analog portion to that. And I do have some cool, you know, little things designed for that. But as far as the clones and stuff like that, um, yeah, not so much. There, there are a lot of companies out there that can build it way cheaper um, than I can do it, you know. And and at that point, it's like, you know, not really worth it. If you can build a twenty thousand dollar compressor for five grand, that's great. But if someone else can do it for four grand, then you know, you know, why bother? Yeah, for sure. Did you ever get around to building that LA two? <laughs> I I had. I had four in my racks. Yeah, I, I built four. And when I was building this studio, uh, I ended up trading them uh, to my contractor for uh, for some payment. I needed nice. a, a booth or two. And he was like, hey, well, I need some gear for my studio. And we made a little trade. But that's all right. I got eight more. In my, I have 96 pieces of unfinished gear in my shop, including a, a shit ton of LA2s. Like, I just, I have so much gear that needs to go in these racks. Like, I want this whole back wall to just be filled with gear. And... Uh, I'm almost there. 96 pieces. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's cool, though. I'm sure you probably just bang them out like whenever you get some time or if there's like a, a specific sound that you're after. It's just like, I got to get this done, right? Like, yeah, if if there's something specific that I'm looking for, I'll I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, but usually what happens is I get really uh, hyper focused on a project like, man, I really want to have uh 1176s. I want 10 of them or 12 of them to put on my drums. Like I really want every channel to have an 1176. So I start designing the, the boards, uh, build the boards. I get, you know, most of the components and then like ADD kicks in. I'm like, oh man, I wish that I had like this, whatever, this EQ. I really need a rack of, of EQs. So then I go out, I get all the parts, I start assembling. And then I'm like, shit, whatever happened to those 1176s let me put those aside and i'll go over here and then i spend two days trying to find all the parts and and you know i end up putting a little bit of work into them and then i start i have to make a record and then i, I go design a plugin and I, i'm like oh shit i need those eqs for that mix and you know it's just a, a cycle <laughs> it never ends i love that because it's like so many so many people these days would be thinking more along the lines of like oh i want that la or 1176 sound and it's like well now i gotta go buy a plugin for it and you're like now i'm gonna build it I'm going to build 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm old school. That's, I love that's it. I love true it. engineering. <laughs> you know, a, a, exactly. And at a certain point, um, you know, you, you kind of have to be selfish with what you do because I could just use a plugin. There are some plugins that sound fine, but the fact that I enjoy turning the knobs and, and turning on the piece of gear and, and interacting with it like that, that's for me. And that's fun. You know, I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, there's there is like a there's a, a special feel when it comes to like playing with that analog gear and you know adjusting physical knobs and and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's awesome. I'd love to talk a little bit about some of your productions that you do, and I was curious, like, how involved do you typically like to get when it comes to producing an album? Like, do you get involved in the songwriting aspects of it? Do you just approach it, like, let the band come in with their own ideas, and then, you know, you focus more on, like, as an engineer versus, you know, getting into, like, creative altering and all that kind of stuff? Like, what's your approach to producing records? The approach is... Um, whatever the band is willing to let me do. You know, when a band... Uh, hires me, I, I work for them. You know, it's my uh, job to get their their idea across. Uh, w also, with adding my own flavor to it, but but the whole concept is to get their idea across. And sometimes um, that's as as simple as just doing some arranging and um, you know making sure all the parts are where they're supposed to be. Sometimes that gets into writing parts, uh, writing lyrics, melodies, um, you know, all that stuff. It could be. Uh, complete hands-on where I do everything and I perform everything and, uh, you know, the person uh, writes lyrics and sings. So it's it's all over the map. You, you kind of have to be prepared to do the whole song yourself. Um, you know, approach it from that aspect of knowing that you might have to do everything, but uh, only do what you need to do. You know, if the band is capable of coming up with a super awesome chorus, uh, you know, that they just don't have yet, put them in the room and, and tell them to work it out. Give them some kind of direction of, you know, 
the, it has to have this kind of feeling to it. And, you know, go in there with all the guys and, and work it out instead of just sitting there and writing it and being like, okay, well, here is my idea of what the song should be. I love that, like what you just said there about giving them some direction, because, you know, I think that that is one aspect that a lot of engineers or producers don't do where, you know, they're just like, oh, I need to be better. But like, it's so vague, right? It's like giving right. some direction, pointing people in the right area is going to help them get those results much easier and faster. So, yeah. And you know what? If you're coming up as a producer, don't make it too easy for the bands either. Because I feel like sometimes when I first started out, I took a lot of, I internalized a lot of things. You know, if something wasn't right, I'd internalize it. I'd, I'd do whatever I could to make it better so the band wouldn't have to worry about it. And then at the end of the day, they think, well, wow, man, we're fucking heroes. You know, we, we have the best whatever. And it's <laughs> like, dude, I slaved over that for three and a half days. And so don't make it too easy for them. You know, give, give them a hard time. You know, let them know that this is going to be difficult and that this is going to be hard and that it's okay because you have it. <laughs> you got their back. <laughs> I, I love that too, because I, I do think that a really big part of a producer's job is kind of teaching the artists as well. Like there's, you know, you hope that they eventually come back to work with you, but by giving them the information that they need to to work on, that just means that next time they're so much more prepared. Right. Exactly. And and, and then it just also gets them like I, I've just personally found that as a musician too, like whenever I work with a producer, I always pick up on something that that producer does that now I think about every time I write music, you know, it's like, what, what would that guy do? What, you know, how, how would he edit this or tweak this part here or, you know, add a texture or something like that. And, and, um, I think that that's one of the really unique things that we have as producers is that we can kind of influence the work other musicians are doing. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then in your opinion, what ends up ultimately making a good song? Like, what are you looking for as a producer? Man, it's so hard to say because music is subjective, but the good song or a good record is where you, you have that, it's just stuck in your head. You wake up in the morning and you're like, oh man, that guitar part is just, I can't get out of my head. Or you wake up and there's that, that lyric that to me is what makes the good song, not necessarily the structure or whatever it may be. Um, it's just, just that thing that that sticks with you yeah if you can make something that's catchy then that's a good sign right exactly you want or, people to it repeat may not, the song it may not even be catchy it, it may be uh because i feel like catchy gets uh lumped into being uh generic and you know just just that one little hook but it doesn't necessarily have to be a hook it has to be something that just it captures your attention i don't know maybe i'm saying it wrong <laughs> no but even even that like because I've heard that described, I've heard it described like that before as generic and writing generic things can be really difficult sometimes. Like I, I find that a lot of musicians are almost too in their head to let themselves get to that generic sound. Like they don't know how to like discuss their emotions, like the singers, especially like, you know, really put those emotions out there in their lyrics and make it very transparent. A lot of times it's like dancing around it with metaphors and this and that, but it's like sometimes having that just super clear, like in your face, this is what I'm feeling. That that can be a that can be a big challenge for a lot of people. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, like you said, I feel like a lot of people spend time dancing around that, which sometimes is better, and and maybe sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes it's, it's nice to have that that artistic uh, taste to it, and sometimes you just gotta say what you gotta say. Yeah, for sure. So then, what's a common mistake that you would typically see artists making when they come into the studio? Like, what kind of tweaks are you making to their music? You know. The biggest thing uh, that I'm finding with bands is um, vocal melodies, um, you know, just kind of staying in, in one little range. And it's like, well, you can go up here and over here and then you could do this and then that. And now that you've done that, now you can build on this for the bridge. And bands don't see it that way. They just want to sing, ah, 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 you know, just whatever that may be. It's not... Uh, it's not creative and and it's kind of limiting what what they can do. Um, and a lot uh, sometimes structure too, where um, it's hard to find a band that can write a bridge. Um, you know, these days it's like, well, it's just the same part as the chorus, but you change the drum beat. you know, now there's like a, a big reverb vocal or something and and it's like, well, it's not really a bridge, but I okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bridges are one of the hardest things to write, I think, because because everyone so focuses so much on the verse and the chorus, but the bridge is yeah. really like the thing that keeps keeps people listening. So you need you need it to stand out. I, I think so too. I, I, it's one of the most important parts of a song to me. You know, once once you have the your chorus and and the part that people are going to love, you need that bridge. It's going to keep them entertained. One aspect of your productions that I really admire the quality of is the sound of your guitar tracks. Like you always have this like really full beefy sounding guitar tone that, that I just love. Um, I was wondering if you could describe what a typical guitar setup typically looks like for you and uh, you know, what kind of stuff you're using. Yeah, it's um, you know, it took me a while to find all the stuff that I really like, but um, super high gain amps uh, usually don't make it into my studio. I found took me a while to find one that that really um, does what I want to do, and that's I have an Ingle Powerball too, and that one has like the right amount of gain, but not all that fizzy stuff that you know that's not really uh, that great. And I love an old school JCM 800. You know, those, those kind of, uh, those kind of amps. Um, and I, I've spent years, um, just, uh, a being different cabinets and speakers and, and, uh, you know, all this stuff, all my old partners, uh, was just obsessed with it. So every day at the studio, we'd have a new package arrive, a new different, a different speaker, a different cabinet, a different, whatever it may be, putting it on foam, putting it on blocks, just doing everything for years. And I end up uh, settling on a, an old school Silvertone um, 1484 cab that has G12H uh, speakers. And that to me is like the ultimate guitar cab. It's got the the mid-range definition. It has the the really thick bottom end to it. Always miking with, with two mics. I have a, a 57 uh, or a Heil uh, PR20 as my like dynamic guy. And I, I always supplement that with a ribbon mic. Although recently I've moved it to um, uh, a Rode NT1 old school $200 microphone. You know, it was one of those things where I was like, listening back to an old session that I'd done. It was a par the Paramore session. And uh, the guitars, I just love the sound of that record. I'm like, well, what did I do differently there? And I looked at the tracks and like the main track uh, that, that I focused in the mix was uh, this Rode NT1. Uh, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to get rid of the Royer, you know, well, not get rid of it, but it's it's going to go somewhere else, and and the NT one is is now my main guy. I I love the NT ones, and I find that a lot of people, because of how affordable they are, a lot of people tend to dismiss them. But you can get amazing sounds out of them. Yes, although I don't know if the new ones sound like the old ones. I don't want to sound like that guy, but I've never compared them, so I feel like whenever I say, "Dude, I use the NT one," everyone's like, "Oh, it sounds like shit," and I'm like, "I don't know. Maybe the new ones do. Maybe they don't. I don't. Maybe." I don't know. <laughs> I have to do a comparison. Yeah. Well, there's something. There is something about some of the first designs of gear. I find like they're they're often a little bit better the first time around, right? And then over time, manufacturers start to cheap out and try to build it as fast as or cheaply as possible, and right, you know, right. cut corners, I guess, right? But uh, yeah, the NT ones, I I I love the sounds of the ones that I've used, which have likely been older ones as well, like. Sometimes I've compared them with like U87s and like they just work better for vocals sometimes with people, you know, like every voice is different. And, you know, if, if you found an application with guitars that makes them sound great, then, you know, that's awesome. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's interesting that you compare that you um, combine it typically with like a 57 or, um, you know, like your dynamic mic. Do you find that you are you're you're leaning more towards the NT1 than the 57? You know, usually not. Usually the 57 is up front because I feel like I have, I, I really like a lot of mid-range in um, in my mixes. So uh, a lot of people like have this like smiley face scoop and I'm like the opposite. I'm always boosting something in the mid. So the, the 57 or whatever will be the feature, but it just never has that like solid bottom end. So I love to blend up that that nt1 or or the Royer until it has that, you know, that sound. Mm -hmm. And are you ever combining amps or does it typically just end up being the one amp you know i used to uh combine amps and use different cabinets and and all this stuff and and uh you know it got too complicated so uh i guess years ago i just reverted to using two different setups for left and right so instead of combining them i'm going to use uh something different on the left side than i do on the right side and kind of uh help widen out that stereo image you know, a lot of people will use like, well, that's my rhythm tone and it's the same 
cab, same head, same guitar for left and right side, uh, which sounds cool. But when you compare it to something where there's a, a slight difference, it's just you know, narrow compared to, to something that's different. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about determining the left side and the right side? Like what, when you add a, a second track in there, what is it that you're trying to do? Like how, what is that difference typically? Is it that one side's a little bit brighter or darker? Like what, how do you typically find those two sounds? You know, it's, it's going to sound counterintuitive, but I try to find something that almost sounds the same. Um, you know, it's that slight little difference. You don't really need that much of a difference in your ears to perceive something as being in, in stereo. So if something's way, <laughs> Lily agrees. <laughs> hey, come here. It's just FedEx. Come here. <laughs> but, you know, I, I find that if you have like, I'm going to give her a second to, uh, work it out of her system. Hey, everybody needs uh, a studio dog. Exactly. <laughs> She's protecting me, <laughs> but yeah, the, the idea is to make, get something that sounds similar, uh, you know, not too far off. It's not like you're going to do a, um, well, actually I can't even say that you could do whatever the fuck you want. As long as it sounds cool, I guess I try to match gain, sustain stuff like that. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense to try to go for something similar because if one side is like really dark, then if the, the mix, the balance just feels awkward. Like it feels like it's all leaning towards one side. Right. 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 And, you know, the other thing is that I don't know if it's just me or my techniques or whatever it may be, but I can never get a solid, like, lower mid sound from miking a cabinet. And uh, from that, I'll always, always, always blend in like a semi-dirty clean sound, whether it be a plug-in or whatever it may be. Mostly it's a plug-in. And I feel like that cleaner, lower mid mixed in with a super, you know, heavy guitar sound, like that just fills out the, the whole spectrum for me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to, to do it that way. That's very cool. Um, another aspect of your recordings that I've always really admired too is the sound of your snare tracks. And uh, you've always had this way of getting like a, a beefy sound that has tons of weight, but it also has a very defined transient as well. And I was wondering if you could share like, what, what's your secret to getting snares to poke through a dense mix? Are you using like transient designers or is it all just in compression or miking technique? What, how, what's your approach there? Dude, it, it is all over the place. So a snare drum, as far as mixing goes, I'm going to blend in. Uh, I have like five or six samples that I really, really like. Um, and they all, all have different flavors to them. And I'll listen to the original snare uh, and and think about what is missing, what it needs, and I'll kind of blend in a sample that has that aspect to it. Uh, and sometimes you blend up to four or five samples um, to get whatever sound that may be. And sometimes it's, um, uh, you know, they're dynamically recorded. Sometimes they're one shots. Uh, sometimes it's a mixture of both. Um, and those uh, uh, go through the, the console, so it gets a little taste of the SSL uh, channel strip compressor and EQ, uh, and then transient designer, of course. I love that thing, so I'm going to add some attack there, some sustain. Uh, and then a parallel send goes to a Compex limiter, or recently I've been using my Roger Mayer uh, RM58 limiter, um, and blend that in with the, the full mix. So, so it sounds like you're, you are relying a little bit more heavily on the samples as opposed to just keeping the raw dryer track, right? Well, you kind of have to, um, well, that's the thing is if you just rely on the samples, it just sounds like, uh, I don't know. It sounds like a one shot drum thing. I still try to keep it, uh, still try to keep it natural, but like the supernatural, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's got to have some, some sort of variation. Um, and the blend, uh, you know, I guess it depends on the music too. On heavier stuff, I'll blend them up a little bit more on rock stuff, maybe back a little bit more. Um, you know, and then there's sometimes when you can get away without using a sample at all and you just, you know, you're like, fuck yeah, <laughs> life is awesome. <laughs> it's so rare when that happens, but when it does, it's a great feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, on that, that recent Breaking Benjamin record, Aurora, um, on, uh, far away, zero drum samples on it. And I was really, wow. really proud of that one. That's amazing. Yeah, it's cool. It's very cool. I know that in addition to engineering and producing, you also have a plugin company and we've kind of talked to, alluded to this earlier. How did that all come about? Like how did you get into building software plugins, especially when you are such an analog kind of guy? It came from using plugins and just kind of saying, well, these, this something, it could be better. This could be better. 
um, and maybe I could do it better. So I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to design a plugin. This was probably five years ago. And, uh, you know, so I started doing all this research and like, yeah, it should be easy. I just, you know, tell it what I want to do and then it's done. And then, you know, two years later, I'm like sitting there learning C plus <laughs> plus and reading all these books. And, and now I know way too much about shit that, you know, that, that I don't even want to know about. Like I use, I use a program called uh, MATLAB to formulate all, all my formulas for the, um, the designs. And you know, it's like, that's the same software that risk analysts use to figure out how much insurance it's going to cost somebody. It's like, <laughs> why am I, what am I doing? But you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what, what came about was just, I, I think I can do it better. Uh, plugins sound sterile to me. Uh, they're boring. Uh, they're basic. Um, you know, they kind of don't do what the analog gear does. Most of them don't. Some of them, some of them are getting pretty good. Um, but most of them don't. And, uh, I want to change that. You know, I, I want to make something that has character and vibe and it's not clean. Like none of my plugins are clean. Um, they're all gritty and dirty and they have limited bandwidth and, you know, all sorts of shit. But that's what makes, uh, that's what makes the stuff cool. You know, if everything was flat and everything was perfect and you had every frequency on every instrument, uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have it, nothing would fit. Yeah. And one of the things that I found just in trying some of your plugins, which I love, by the way, like they, I mentioned this oh, earlier, they, they're they're amazing, um, is that they are very customizable. They're they're very versatile. You can do a lot with them uh, to the point where you even have it so you can change out the limit or the resistors and all that kind of stuff in them. Like that's something you don't see on a lot of plugins. Um, so I was curious to to know, like, what was the mindset behind creating a plugin that has tons of customization versus just really focusing on doing the one thing really well? You know, that, that seems to be what most people do, right? Right, exactly. Um, well, the inspiration for that is, is uh, I guess, it, it's from growing up in a time where when I first started recording, I recorded onto tape. And that's all that there was. And... Um, I see a lot of kids now like don't have that experience. They don't have the experience or, or the knowledge of, you know, this is a, a stationary thing. It's going to move this way to this way. And the song, you know, the, the tape has a flow and, and all this stuff and you have to rewind and fast forward and, um, kind of taking that, um, just feeling bad for these kids, not having that and applying that to, uh, to the gear. Like I love, uh, tinkering with gear. Like I've, customized basically every piece of gear that I own, even my console, I'm digging around in there and changing out shit and replacing circuit boards and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I wanted people to have that experience. You know, there are kids that are growing up that, uh, that don't even have hardware, you know, they, they have a microphone. That's the only hardware they have. They plug it into an interface and then they start recording. Um, and I just wanted to give them and also, you know, anyone who's just working in the box like that, that feeling and that, that experience of being able to, tweak or tinker with your stuff and, and make it your own. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, you're right. I think that it actually kind of teaches people about the analog circuitry, the way your plugins are set up, you know, because there, there is so much of that element to it. It does feel like you're you're building a piece of outboard gear because yeah, you can that's go it. that deep with it. Right. You know, and, and that that's an important thing, too, is to, to learn. You know, I always tell people, uh, you know, oh, what's the best advice you, you'd ever gotten? And that was, you know, learn your craft, learn what you're doing, understand what you're doing. Um, and that goes goes for everything. And, and now I release these plugins and, and I'm seeing huge threads about people comparing different tubes now. And well, all these tubes are all the exact same. How could they sound different? And, you know, you show, send them to a link and shows you like the dynamic breakdown of different frequency responses, even if it's the same type of tube. And, you know, just people are, are starting to get interested in that stuff. Hmm. And sometimes it's often it's just subtleties, right? Like the, the, a lot of these differences that you can make, they're they're not like the biggest change in the world, but there's, there's something right. about them, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And that, that, and that's definitely one of the things that I found with your plugins as well, is that when you mess around with stuff, like sometimes you might not notice that change right away, but if you really start to pay attention to it, you're like, Oh, I see. I get this now. I, I see where this would be a better option to use here. That kind of thing. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, in terms of the actual plugins that you've built, are they modeled after specific gear that you have also built or that just yeah, your favorite pieces? So, so the, the pawn shop comp was inspired from uh, a compressor that I bought when I was a kid, when I, when I was younger, 
um, I would go to pawn shops and pick up all this old recording gear. And it's a shame because like now uh, for kids today, a, a pawn shop compressor is like a Behringer composer or something like that. In my day, it was a bunch of old ham radio stuff that people were building, you know, custom tube limiters for their broadcast transmitters and, you know, all this cool shit with tons of transformers on it. And I, and I had picked up this compressor and it I had no idea what it was. I didn't even know what it did. Um, but it had like a couple big knobs on there and, and you know, transformers hanging off the back and, and very much uh, DIY hand built and plugged it in. I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what happened to that thing, um, but it, that was like, you know, that was the thing. Like, man, I, I wish I had a plug in that, that did that and kind of did that thing. Um, and so I kind of took that and. Uh, mixed a few things together. So the, the pawn shop comp it has an emulated tube circuit path uh, that's based on an old RCA preamp. And uh, and I'm like, well, instead of making it a tube limiter, I feel like the, the FET limiters are way quicker and, and they can handle a lot more uh, source material. So I was like, well, let's add uh, a FET sidechain to this tube preamp and see what happens. And I did it virtually. And uh, it, it worked out, <laughs> it worked out great. Um, and then for the talkback limiter, that is completely based on a classic British, uh, talkback system protection compressor. <laughs> I feel like if I say SSL, they're going to come and sue me. But, uh, <laughs> so that one, uh, uh, I, I literally took the board out of my console. I analyzed it. I created my own clone. Uh, learned how the circuit worked, threw it in the computer, uh, generated the, the code and, and made some tweaks to um, to make that what it was. But I knew that there was there were some fun things about it other than its sound. Um, but I, I found that by biasing the transistor that causes the compression differently, man, it, it gets really, really wild, um, you know, a lot more than just set it and forget it. So I was like, man, you know, we had to have a, a control for this on the back somewhere, you know, as if you're popping open the lid and you can tinker with it. Um, and also the thing I really liked about the limiter was, um, analyzing the frequency response, um, of the analog, uh, piece, it had a weird bump, you know, around 30 Hertz, 40 Hertz, and then a dip at like eight K. And, um, you know, I found out that the bottom end was just kind of, uh, you know, just in the design, it just kind of did that. And the eight K, uh, dip was uh, a filter they put in to kind of act like uh, a DSer. So, um, I feel like that, uh, when it's added into the plug and like kind of gives it that analog feel, you know, it's bright, you know, it doesn't sound like it's dark, even though there's a huge dip at 8k, but it's, it's bright and it's warm and you know, it's thumpy and pumpy all the good shit. Yeah. That's very cool. It's, uh, it's interesting because yeah, I don't think that, that talkback wasn't really designed to be used the way it eventually became right. No, it, it wasn't. It was literally the cheapest or quickest design they could do to have a super fast limiter. Uh, it's like infinity to one uh, ratio. Um, it's crazy. And, um, it, you know, I put a meter on there on the front so that people could see something moving. And, and they get so, like, freaked out about, like, you know, a whisper and the thing's flapping <laughs> 20 dB of gain reduction. You're like, I wish this was more manageable. I'm like, man, the original had no meter and it was just destroying your signal. But that's that's the sound, you know. It's not it's not meant for gentle compression. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I must confess that a lot of people are like, man, if I could just turn down the input a little bit, it would be great. So I am, I am going to add input and output controls to it uh, just so people can use it on more sources, I guess. I can't complain with that. Yeah, but it's such a versatile sound. And, and I had mentioned to you that, like, it's it's my new go to sound for bass. Like, I just love what you can do with it. And uh, the distortion and stuff like that you can get out of it is just it's crazy. It's it's it sounds like an amp. <laughs> like, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fun. I uh, I feel like you can use that on a ton of sources um, with that the mix knob. You know, you're gonna blast something till it's completely exaggerated and destroyed, and you never use it, and just kind of dial back the mix knob a little bit, and you're like, oh, this is like the best sound I've ever gotten ever. Yeah, <laughs> you can almost make it sound like a synth to some degree. You know, like when you really saturated that hard. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's 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 a very unique sound, and uh, 
something I'm definitely going to be putting in my mixes like crazy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, hey, that's a good sign, right? I mean, if, if you're going to build something that uh, ultimately you end up wanting to use, then, you know, you've, you've hit the mark, right? You know, it's funny. I have four analog units in my studio, which I use on every mix, and I still put four or five plugins on my mix every time. You can, I can never have enough yeah, of them. That's, that's super cool. I think that that's one of the, uh, it's one of the really cool things about being able to understand, you know, the, the makeup of your hardware units and know how to make plugins. Like you can just make as much as you want and, you know, have, have all of the things in front of you. Right. And just, you, you know, know, have fun with it. It's funny. You should say that because that's like, uh, that's what's taking me so long to release more products is that I get an idea and I make a beta, um, send it out to my beta testers and they're like, yeah, this is great. And I'm like, fuck, well, what if it did this and this, and then also sounded like this, 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 and this. <laughs> and then, you know, two months later, it's like, oh, I got a beta. And I'm like, man, I are five options enough for this or should I have 20? <laughs> and, you know, so I, I get into this cycle and, you know, I guess it's, it's about just, bringing value to the product and at the same time being able to have more fun. And, you know, that's what it's all about. We do this because it's fun. Yeah. And it's great to have that much versatility in one plugin as opposed to having to select between five or six different plugins to, to get the same sounds, right? Like, I, I like just being able to know that if I throw this one plugin in, plug in, it's going to do whatever I need it to do. And and I feel like I've, I've got that with your plugins. You, It's funny you should say that because... I did this uh, sound on sound. Um, no, it wasn't sound on sound. It was uh, uh, some kind of mix, uh, mix con, did a mix con. And uh, uh, I mixed a Breaking Benjamin song. And then I was talking about like most of the mix sessions that I get, um, there's like 30 plugins on every channel. And it's, it's, it just seems wrong to me. There, there's got to be a better way to do it where you don't need 30 plugins to get <laughs> that guitar or that vocal to sound a certain way. Um, and I kind of keep that in mind too when uh, when making a plugin. Like it, it's going to be that's the only plugin that you need on that channel. Um, and you know that's that's kind of the the concept that I'm running with for sure. And yeah, I think you you nailed it because. Yeah, there, there's so much flexibility in those plugins. And, and uh, with the Pawn Shop compressor, like, I don't think I've ever used a compressor that has that much flexibility in it in terms like, I always find that like some plugins, it's the attack and release settings, like they're, they're very limited in what they can do. Whereas the Pawn Shop compressor has such a wide range of times that, you know, you can really shape the sound to what you what you want it to be. Uh, so it's, it's very cool to have that. I agree. I agree. Yeah, you can get it to be really soft and smooth, or you can get it to be really pumpy and in your face. Uh, it, it, it's like like having an 1176. I feel like that that's like a super versatile workhorse. You can put it on any source. And uh, the same thing with the pawn shop comp. I'd love to talk a little bit about your mixes as well. What is your typical approach when it comes to starting a mix? Like, where do you start? How do you start? Do you, do you typically follow a similar process with every mix? Yeah, I, I feel like I do. Um, I almost always uh, put all of my faders at like negative 15 and I just play the song and just kind of hear what what is happening there. Um, and compared to the reference mix, obviously a reference mix is, is big for me because I, I, I love to hear what they were trying to go for. Because when you're the mixer, you can make it sound like anything you want. And, uh, you know, it's good to be able to put your stamp on there, but also... Uh, get the 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 vision that they were going for with it, but yeah, I always start with with my faders at negative fifteen. Listen to the song, uh, figure out what's going on. Uh, try to make mental notes of like the the pieces that stick out to me as um, as the main focus, um, and then I pull all the faders down. I always start with the drums. Uh, try to get drums and bass uh, sitting together nicely. Throw in my guitars, and then throw in vocals. Um, so it's drums, bass, guitars, lead vocals, and then I, I think everything else fits in around them. So you try to make your synths and your percussion and all this kind of stuff fit in around that main base of the music. Mm -hmm. And when you're listening to the reference mix, what kind of things are you paying attention to in them? I'm, I'm trying to find out all the special little things that they added to the mix. Uh, 
do they do a, a delay throw here? Is, is there like a huge reverb on this one part? Is there a chorus or some kind of modulation going on uh, on another thing? Just kind of picking up that idea and, and figuring out what, what they were trying to go for and then figure out the best way to do it. Yeah, that's one of the cool things about reference mixes I find is that often the musicians, they don't know, they don't, they're not mixers, so they they don't have the technical know-how to like shape a sound a certain way, but they often have more of a bigger picture approach where it's like, I want this effect on this or that kind of thing. So when you listen to those mixes, you can definitely get a, a cool sense of what the overall idea is just based on you exactly. know, what they do. And you know what's funny is that you, I think you kind of nailed something when you said that they don't have the experience to, to make it sound the way that they want. But their inexperience can also sometimes bring to light some cool sounds that you probably wouldn't have tried. Um, you know, there, there may be there's definitely something about that demoitis, uh, you know, that maybe it's not better than the final mix or whatever. But there's something about it, you know, the, the overall vibe. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you, you just got to. Try to copy what they do as well. You hear something that's cool, and you're like, "Oh fuck, I got that sounds cool. Let's do that." <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's also I can't funny, have all the good ideas. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny too because I find that like you know, as engineers, we tend to want to get into it and like start shaping things and adding all sorts of EQs and whatnot. But a lot of times, those cool things that we're hearing in those rough mixes are just like a stock setting, you know, and it doesn't need that tweaking, but. You know, our, our, the, the internal part of us is just like, oh, I got to like add this and that, but it's like, you know, knowing <laughs> yeah, when to stop yeah. doing that. Right. And, and remove right. yourself from it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's very true. So how long does it typically take you to finish a mix then? Oh God. It, it, the problem with me is that I'm not, not very business minded. So it, it takes as long as it takes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, I feel like, um, if I go in, my wife's a teacher, so I get up super early. I'm at the studio at 6 a.m. Uh, and I feel like that by 2 p.m., I have the song in the ballpark. I feel like by that time, I have something uh, that I'm really excited about. Sometimes if the session is a little more problematic, I take it to dinner time. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I try to give it a night and come back the next morning and give it another listen. Sometimes you need that little break. Um but I guess somewhere between a day or two days to mix a song. Yeah. And how do you know when you're done a mix? You know, it's it's hard to say. With my own stuff, I never finish a mix. As I say, I, I abandon it. <laughs> you know, you, you just do what you can. Uh, and you sit there and sulk for years. And then you finally <laughs> listen to it 10 years later. And you're like, fuck, man, I killed this. This sounds amazing. <laughs> but you dread the whole thing. But I feel like a mix is done when... Uh, when I can't find anything more wrong with it, you know what I mean? Like if you're listening, when I listen to a mix, I always listen for, um, for all the shit that's bad. Everything is wrong. The bottom end's wrong. The snare drum's wrong. The vo this vocal's too low. There's no focus in this part. And as soon as I can listen to the song without making a shitty comment about it, I'm like, all right, listen, let's send this to the band. Yeah. See if they like it. Well, it sounds like you, you kind of have a bit of a process in terms of how you like to work. So you mentioned doing like drums, bass, guitar, vocals, and, and working in that order. And I feel like if you if you have that kind of approach, it probably makes it easier for you to decide when you're done because you've kind of followed a process over and over again, you know, as opposed to some people who just mix by throwing up random things and working in a random order. I think when you do that, you're kind of constantly searching for problems and you'll find problems because of that, you know? Could be. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, yeah. At what point did you feel like you were making great mixes? Like what, what, what you know, did you, was there like a moment where you never, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like, uh, when I first started, I didn't want to be a mixer. I just wanted to send it to my favorite guys. I want Andy Wallace to mix all my records. I want Randy Staub to mix all my records. I want Ben Gross to mix all my records. Like, you know, all these guys and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, Bands can't afford these guys, so they'll get someone else to mix it, and and then you get this mix back, and you're like, fuck. Uh, same thing, like when you're a kid, like I could do better than this. So it's like out of necessity, um, you know, just just learning and hammering it out until you get something that's that's cool and, and different. That's very cool. What's something that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're crazy for doing? Oh, d almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love compression. I, I have a sh almost all my racks are compressors. 
I double compress my mix bus. So my console, it's an 8K uh, SSL 8000 series. So I have uh, four stereo groups and two mix buses. So I end up using my stereo groups as uh, as separate mix buses. So I have a, a music bus that I compress. I have uh, a parallel bus that I compress. I have a vocal bus and then an effects bus, like 808s and all that kind of stuff that I compress. And then all of those feed to another compressor, uh, the one that's in the console, uh, and then to two EQs. So, uh, I, I took me a while to get into the pull tech sound. I was never really into it. Um, but I, I wanted to have a slightly bigger bottom than, than what I had. I was using these, uh, Filtech mastering EQs, which I love and I still, still do. Um, but, uh, I eventually settled on this pull tech, uh, the Clark technique clones though, the $200 guys, I use them on my mix bus, love them. Um, so I'm kind of dialing in the bottom end, the top end with those, and then using the Filtech for the mid-range. Um, so like my mix bus gets one, two, three, four, five, five compressors, two EQs. You know, it's crazy shit. And I'm compressing hard. There's nothing gentle about it. Um, you know, it's it's a different vibe when you live in the compression land. Like a soft intro guitar uh, starting a song, it's going to get 8 to 10 dB gain reduction just to start out. And... Uh, you know, everything kind of just sits in its place. And that's what I really like about overcompressing stuff is it just stays there. And, uh, and that kind of helps, you know, it's kind of like a protection from mastering and from the radio and stuff like that. Like it just sits there and you know that when it gets loud, when it's mastered, it's going to sound the same. And you know that when it's on the radio and it's loud, it's going to sound the same. Um, and I think that's why I started, started doing that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that you slam them all pretty hard because that was going to be my question is like, are you going subtle and then like just doing this massive serial compression thing that's like gentle at each stage? But if you're going really hard like that, like what is why do you feel the need to add more compressors? Because if you're slamming something real hard, often, you know, it has that really compressed sound to begin with. So what is it like? Do you have like a thought process behind like the order of these compressors and what each one of them is supposed to be doing in that chain? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So uh, the whole point for me of compressing is keeping things level and then also bringing out the details and um in a dense mix there's so much stuff happening you need to hear all those little details to them so on my individual mix buses uh i'm compressing uh with like a slow attack fast release so it's going to make them really really punchy um but that kind of sounds unnatural um, when you leave everything like that. So then I run it through the other bus compressor. They all sum down to this other bus compressor. There's a little bit faster attack, a little bit slower release uh, to kind of even out the peaks. And, uh, you know, that to me keeps the punchy sound, but also brings up all those details. Very cool. Yeah, I can see how that would work. Like you're just kind of, yeah, it's evening. It's leveling everything out as it goes from one piece to the next. And shaping the sounds all the way through and and it's tough for some people to do i I, it's hard in the box because i haven't really found uh, a bus compressor that will work that way uh in in series like that um if i take two ssl bus compressor plugins and you know put them one after another just it doesn't quite do the same thing uh as what my my analog stuff does do you think that's because every piece of analog gear kind of has its own character to it I think that it's because th- when they model that gear, you know, they're they're kind of um, assuming what it does. Well, and that goes with any plugin. You know, you're assuming uh, something is going to react a certain way. And, and there just are limitations uh, with the software. Um, and where my bus compressor might distort and make things a little more punchy and aggressive the plugin's going to clip and it's going to round off a transient instead of projecting it. So there, there are, I feel like things like that, um, that happen that, that kind of keep you from achieving that result. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. Aside from the normal, like cleaning of your tracks when you're, when you're mixing and, you know, getting them to sound nice and clean and clear, how do you go about making more creative moves in a mix? What's your approach behind that? Are you, is it something you're just kind of doing and then checking with the artist later and seeing if they like that or, well, you you always you know like i said you uh you work for the band you want to achieve their vision but at the same time you got to mark your territory and uh i try to do something 
within the first five to 10 seconds of the song that, that no one's expecting to do. Um, whether it be some kind of creative EQ thing, whether it be a delayed vocal, something that just doesn't exist there, just add your mark to it. And so no one's expecting it. And you know that that is your mix and people are going to like you because it's different. They're going to like it. That's that's really cool. Yeah. It's it's like your own signature sound. Yeah. Right. And try something different every time. It doesn't have to be the same thing every time. For sure. And um, a little bit ago, you talked about when you would set up the rough mixes, you set everything up at about like minus 15. How do you typically approach gain staging in your mixes once you start over, right? Because you said you pull everything down to zero and then you start bringing it in. Do you have, do you have an approach for like keeping enough headroom there? You start to learn this as you go along. But when I first started mixing, I noticed that like all my faders, I'd start kind of high. All my faders start creeping up as I'm mixing the song. And all of a sudden I have like no headroom left. And my master fader is turned down because I'm blowing the output of the console up. And uh, it took a while to learn, you know, start start a little bit lower. The the meter, the output meter on the console is there for a reason. Um, uh, for me, uh, you know, starting with just give yourself some headroom, you know what I mean? Give yourself some space and eventually you start to learn where those points are on your gear and, uh, and kind of stay within there. And, and I'm finding now that, um, you know, keeping a moderate headroom on on my four stereo buses, uh, really makes the mix a lot clearer for sure. you know, the, the console can take a beating too. Like it, you can really smash the output, uh, of that console. and, And there's definitely something cool about it, but it doesn't work every time. Um, you know, when I'm sitting back uh, looking at my mix on the console, um, first of all, it's compressed so heavily, but it, you know, the meter's just sitting at zero and maybe moving a little bit here and there. And that's when I know that, you know, it's got the right stuff. <laughs> yeah. And since you are using a lot of outboard gear, are you like, what's your approach with setting up outboard gear? Cause I know that I've always heard that like people like Chris Lord Algae, for example, like don't really change their settings on their compressors. It's just kind of, they know how to feed into it at a certain level. Are you kind of taking that same approach or I, I do the exact same thing. Um, the, the only gear that I really tweak is, um, is when I'm tracking, I'll turn knobs all day and night, but when I'm mixing, um, I have like the setting on my compressor that I love. I know when I hit it a certain way, it's going to sound a certain way. You know, it's, it's part of my sound. Uh, same thing with my guitars. I have, uh, a certain EQ curve that I like. I have, uh, I use this little stereo widener box. Um, you know, it's all pretty much the same stuff. Maybe a little tweak here or there, um, but it's it's mostly set the same. And then at, at that point, too, it, it helps me because if something doesn't sound right, I know it's the track. It's not my shit. You know what I mean? Like if you're tweaking everything, you don't know where the problem is. But if you know that that sounds a certain way and it sounded great on four other records and it doesn't sound great now, it's got to be something with the track. Either try something different or, you know, whatever, or tweak your track a little bit. I love that. That's a, that's a really good thing to keep in mind, right? Because, yeah, people, you know, you can you can overthink everything and undo a lot of the, the work and, you know, start questioning everything. So, right. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, it helps with recalls, too. Uh, honestly, you know, with all this gear, there's thousands and thousands of knobs in here. It's not like opening up your Pro Tools session and changing the hi-hat and hitting print. It's That's not the case. So the more that you can be consistent, uh, the quicker you can do recalls and stuff like that, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and also the fact that you have so many different pieces of outboard gear, you know, that that gives you a lot of that flexibility, right? That is it's kind of the equivalent of the large plug in list. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Especially once you finish those 96 pieces that are still waiting to be done. Oh, right? my God. Yes. <laughs> I cannot wait. I can't wait. When you, And so when you build those pieces, do you. Do you have a specific application in mind for them? Like, are you thinking about like the settings that you want to just keep? That's exactly it. Yeah. It, it's like trying an 1176 on a drum and saying, oh, that'd be cool. And you try it on the snare drum. Sounds cool. And then you try it on the Thompson. Like, oh, this is cool too. And it's like, well, let's just get 10 of them. You know, let's just do that and use that sound because it sounds really cool. So yeah, everything has a certain purpose. But you know, when I first started, um, it was more about acquiring stuff. Um, and especially with the DIY gear, um, somebody would make a front panel. Someone would get a custom order of, of all the hard-to-find parts like transformers and transistors and stuff like that. And 
And I didn't want to miss all that out on that stuff. And they don't last forever. So every time a new project would show up, I'm like, man, I'm buying four of those. And I just grab them and I'm buying four of them. And eventually you have like a whole bunch of partially finished pieces of gear sitting around. It's funny. <laughs> but but then as you get, you know, as your shop fills up, you're like, man, I, some stuff needs to have a little more purpose. You now I want to build a certain batch of gear for a specific purpose. And, um, and then your life gets a lot better, a lot more organized. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> See, I, I imagine the the hydro bill on that stuff. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, yeah. That's that's it's one of the, uh, the the downside to using all that nice analog gear, I guess. Right? <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, to the point now where the past week or so, I've been researching building a, a switching power supply for my console and and changing the computer over to the Tangerine system or something. I mean, energy is expensive, and this stuff does not fuck around. Like. These power supplies, I, I need three of them to power my console, and, and you know they're I need, they need a twenty amp circuit themselves, and you know it could easily run a shit ton of money just to just to keep the console on. It's For crazy. Sure. Yeah. To piggyback off of an older question that I asked you, um, we're talking about guitar tones, and I mentioned that you always have this like really beefy, full sounding guitar sound. When it comes to getting the low end right in your mixes, do you have any tips for that? Yeah, you know. I feel like people aimlessly start just boosting frequencies on everything. So you're going to boost a bunch of low end on your kick drum. You're going to boost a bunch of low end on your bass, a bunch on your guitars. And then eventually you get this like cloudy mess. There's no clarity, no definition. And, uh, it, it like counteracts what you're trying to do. Um, and I try to tell people that sometimes, uh, the low end might actually be a little higher than you think it might be. For me, it's about getting rid of the stuff that you don't need first. You know, high-passing guitars, sometimes up to 200 hertz. Um, high-pass bass. I, I always love to have my kick drum below the bass, so I'm high-passing the bass at 80 or 100. And then uh, kick drum sits probably around 50. Um, so just having separate segments for where this lot, bo uh, bottom end happens, I think that really helps. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's just like, yeah, segmenting everything and putting it in its own chunk mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and yeah you're right about um sometimes it is a little higher than you think because you know people tend to think all low end is equal in a way you know like just boost all everything below 100 hertz and you've got bass but right <laughs> <laughs> maximum bass at all frequencies at all frequencies yeah <laughs> that's awesome well dan thank you so much for uh for joining us today and, and doing this i really do appreciate it and you, you had some amazing insight into a lot of this stuff if people want to follow you online, what can they do to to learn more about you? I'm all over Instagram and Facebook. Um, my website has some some good info on, on me. I think those are the, the main places to start. And it's dancornf.com for, for your personal website, yeah. right? And then Cornuff Audio is your plugin company. Cornuff Audio is the plugin company. That's right. Awesome. Cool. And uh, lastly, any cool projects that you're currently working on that you might be able to share some insight on? I'm mixing this super awesome girl right now, Aida Maria. She's Norwegian and uh, she's kind of like the Strokes meets Weezer. Amazing. Hmm. It's really, really Very cool. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Any idea when that might come out? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Five songs in. We'll see. Nice. Well, that sounds exciting. I, I'm definitely into both those bands, so it'll be cool to check out. Excellent. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for taking the time today and I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. So that was my interview with Dan Corneff and that was a lot of fun to do. It was really cool to hear his approach to building his own analog gear and kind of being very strategic with the results that he's looking for. And, you know, because he has that knowledge of how the gear is assembled, he can manipulate the gear to get the sounds that he wants. So that was really fascinating. And I loved hearing how that tied into him building plugins that have a lot of versatility as well. It was really, really cool. I also really like hearing about his approach to using compression and how he adds a ton of compression, but he's also very strategic with how he sets up his compressors and what each compressor in the chain is doing. So it was really fascinating to hear it directly from him. And now that I understand the way he approaches compression, it makes all of his plugins make a lot of sense to me. And I would highly recommend you guys all check them out. Corn F Audio. His plugins are unreal good. The uh, the pawn shop compressor is probably the most versatile compressor I've ever used. And his talkback limiter plugin is probably my new favorite plugin on bass. It's such a cool sound and you can get a ton of character out of it. So definitely make sure to check those out.
Now, if this is your first time listening to the Master Your Mix podcast, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And if you could leave a rating and review, that would be amazing as well. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. And on the website, I'm currently giving away something I call the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a free guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes. And it's designed to help you get results much faster and to quickly identify which frequencies you need to be paying attention to, what you need to boost, what you need to cut, and what kind of compression settings you should use in order to make your tracks really stand out in your mix. So make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com. And that's it for today's episode, guys. I hope you really enjoyed that, and I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.